iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. This is Dr. Joan Tallis, the United States Planet Earth. Do you read me? Is anyone out there? We're getting feedback. Let's try another channel. What does that Listen. mean? I don't understand what Kimberly. that means. In the grand history of the cosmos, more than 13,000 million years old, our Earth is replicated elsewhere. There's another you out there. Now you begin to wonder, has the other me made the same mistakes I've made? And is that me better than this me? Let me tell you a story. It's about a girl. She does something unforgivable. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator from the Columbia School of the Arts, Annette Insdorf, and tonight's guests, Britt Marling and Mike Cahill. Welcome, everybody. I am luckier than all of you because I've already seen the film, but you'll all get a chance because it opens tomorrow. Um, I'm very happy to welcome two people that you only know a slight amount about. Yes, Mike Cahill is the director and the co-writer. And you should know that Britt Marling is not merely the star of the film. She is also co-writer and co-producer. And while we're at it, I'm going to add that Mike Cahill is also the cinematographer and editor and co-producer. So we've got a lot of identities here. Right? <laughs> um, I'm going to start off with uh, a question because... You can get the idea from the trailer that this is a sort of high-concept, low-budget, science fiction film, if I've got to, you know, choose a, a generic term. But it's also got some very poetic and philosophical material in it. Um, before seeing it, I assumed that I'd have to compare it to other science fiction films. And at the end, I go, uh-uh. These guys know the work of the Polish director, Kieślowski, who made The Double Life of Veronique in Three Colors, Blue, White, Red, because his speculations about human identity 
um, spirituality seem to me much more central than what we might call typical science fiction. So I hope you don't mind. I, I wrote a book about the work of Kishlovsky and I was his translator, so I'm going to start with a question about that before we move into the other. Could you talk about how Kishlovsky's inspiration worked for you? Absolutely. It's amazing. It, I am so blown away that you've made this reference. He, Kishlovsky is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, and... Um, I think what he does so exceptionally well is he he finds the magic in the mundane. He he in in his filmmaking and in the stories that he touches somehow it touches the divine. I think, and he has this beautiful film called The Double Life of Veronique, which is about this young woman who um, has a double, a doppelganger, or a dual soul, and um, and in some ways. It, it, it seems to be answering that yearning question that we have for, or that filling that fantasy of that desire to connect, especially with a, a dual soul, someone who would have complete empathy with you because they are you in some ways. And so we did our version, or we, you know, with a great deal of inspiration from him. I read your book. I loved your book. And I've seen all his films. And, and yeah, I think, I think this, our, ours is our American version of, of you know the the story of a young woman who's who's seeking redemption. The questions of fate versus choice are very very key in his uh, filmmaking, and and so this is our contribution to the world of film, I guess. Yeah. And the, any additional thing for you? I mean, actually, Mark, my husband mentioned last night that even though physically you're very different, you reminded him of Juliette Binoche, mm. perhaps because of the mm. film Blue. A certain kind of restraint, I think, mm. in the performance. I mean, a refusal to make yourself sympathetic either as a character or as an actor. Mm. That's really, that's very, it's a very ni- nice, com- kind comparison. Um, it's true. In that film, in Blue, she, uh, there's a similarity to Rhoda. I actually hadn't thought of this before, in that both of them seem to be uh, not passive or victims in their grief. Like in that story, she's her grief is active. It has agency, and she's constantly driving forward, not wallowing in self pity. Like she takes clear, decisive moves to attempt to build a new, meaningful life out of the ashes of this former one. When she buys this new apartment and sort of won't speak with any of her friends, and there is a real similarity to that with Rhoda. And I, yeah, I mean, I think in general we we were moved by all of his films and. I think particularly the idea of not trying to um, be so literal in talking about the metaphysical. Like, it's a bit like, I think why his films are so successful is you can't talk about that stuff very directly. It's sort of like looking into the sun. You're blinded by it. But if you look a bit to the periphery on one side or the other, you maybe catch a little bit of the magic that is unknown, unsayable, and... And, and I do apologize to those people here who go, who? Kishlovsky? What is she talking about? But let me just suggest one idea to you that might help you appreciate Another Earth and if you ever get to see Kishlovsky's Decalogue or Double Life of Veronique or Blue, White, Red. I have been occasionally tempted by the notion that there may exist somewhere in the universe another version of myself, an evolved version of myself, And in Double Life, there even is the stated notion that maybe because I make a mistake on this earth, if I burn myself next to a stove, 
maybe my other self somewhere will know not to turn on that flame the same way. Um, the idea that you're not alone in the universe and that there's a double that is not simply your twin in a sense, but a second chance. And there's something incredibly haunting and compelling about that idea, which Kishlovsky literalized, and frankly, I think another Earth suggests too. So, you know, I hope you'll all forgive that little digression. <laughs> now, to go back to what, for many people here, is closer to the fact, science fiction, that's how this is being built in a certain way. Um, have either of you um, had favorite sci-fi films that are perhaps more accessible than The Double Life of Veronique. Um, I don't know, and even relatively contemporary films, I was thinking of things like Contact, you know, with Jodie Foster right. trying to make contact with another realm that is close to ours. Are there any particular films for you? Sure, yeah. There's a Twelve Monkeys. Twelve Monkeys is phenomenal, based off La Jetée, which, which is lo-fi sci-fi and black and white stills. Um... I mean, so many. It's Solaris, uh, 2001, District 9 recently was great. Moon was great. Um, you know, and then there's, there, I mean, there's so many influences. I, I'm a huge science fiction fan, for sure. And, and I think what we do is, it's interesting because it is being called sci-fi because of the other Earth up in the sky, but it is very much a human drama. And, and yet sci-fi is all about um, it's the literature of ideas, or it's the it's the it's reality with a twist, and that twist usually allow, allows us to get closer to understanding who we are as humans. And I think over time, especially recently, the the definition of sci-fi has grown to include the the vast, large spectacle. Um, but at its heart, like the, ori- the you know the original stories and. You know, like old school Twilight Zone or whatever. The, it was more like about the the philosophy behind it, and, and so in that sense, it is yes, very much a science fiction movie, but old school. And for you, Britt, because if I think back to most science fiction films, the protagonist is u- usually male. Uh, maybe There's I mentioned alien. Contact yeah, because yeah. you know it's one of the few that has a female protagonist. Um, were there certain films that helped to shape your sense of where this film would go? Um, I think the, the film that I'm always the most moved by is 12 Monkeys and La Jete, the short it's based on. I think because it's deeply entertaining just as a thriller, which is on its superficial level. But then the science fiction is creating at the end of that. I mean, I love that moment where the young version of him is watching an older version of himself die. And to me, that's perfect sci-fi because he's that's impossible in like the way we understand the world currently in physics and mathematics. I mean, maybe we'll find out later that it's not, but currently that's impossible. And yet that, that juxtaposition is, is showing us something about what it means to be human as we understand it. And so you're, it's talking about mortality and immortality and the loss of innocence and science fiction becomes just the lens that is allowing you to sort of get, I don't know, at something deeper that is just human and visceral and, I was going to say another one that, that you wouldn't necessarily think is sci-fi, but does have that element, is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, oh, which is phenomenal because it is reality with a twist, the ability to erase memories. And I don't know, do they, is that considered sci-fi? Not really, but yeah. Well, the high concept is doing the same thing. It's like telling you something about a relationship between two people. It's like showing you a fresh lens on it 
but getting closer at things that we all know and feel yeah. about being in love or out of love. Like that final moment, too, in the movie is so precious because the two of them are like walking down the hallway and they're like, you know, if we stay together, you're just going to think I'm annoying and, and you're going to think I'm boring. And, and then they stop and they look at each other and they're like, all right. And it cuts the black. <laughs> I love that. I never thought of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind as being potentially science fiction, but now in your description, I'm revising because obviously there are films that are fantasy, fantastical, supernatural. They depend to a great extent on special effects. But Eternal Sunshine, perhaps like your film to some extent, it uses something that is scientific. It has doctors, it has tapes. In other words, there's an element that could be connected to the advances being made technologically in our world. It's just that you go inside. It becomes internal landscape rather than external. Right. But it works, yeah. right? Absolutely. Um, it's rare for one person to occupy as many roles as you do in this film. I think John Sayles is one of the very few I can think of who's writer, director, sometimes cinematographer, editor. Who do you have looking over your shoulder? Because clearly there's a, a system of checks and balances when you have a director, an editor, a cinematographer. Each one can contribute something and there's a balance. Who do you trust to tell you when your three roles are not letting you see clearly? That's a great question. We, we were very fortunate to work with um, this company, a non-for-profit called Artist Public Domain here in New York City. And it's run by uh, Paul Mazze, this amazing producer, Tyler Brody and Hunter Gray. And then also Nick Shoemaker was another producer, and the two of us produced. But, so our team was, was very, very involved, and they're such intelligent storytellers. And, and, and uh, Paul Mazze in particular has a really strong sense of story. And so we would, I would, after I had made a rough cut that was like two hours and 40, minute, or two hours and 40 minutes, I had a screening, we all watched it, and, and took notes. And, and then we had a screening for very close friends, um, that are in movies or work in movies and who perhaps were not producers on the film but, but close friends of ours that were producers and they gave us feedback and then I kind of just corralled it all and, and um, could see if there was a note that, that every, everybody wrote down like their notes on a questionnaire and, and I could see if things were common and then I'd reassess and so, but we had a really good team yeah. But I, I didn't have arguments with my cinematographer that would be like inside my head and, uh, or my editor. But Talk about double life. You had a triple yeah. or quadruple life on this like, film, right? Why did you do that, man? Okay. <laughs> um, and, and one more question for Britt, because I'm curious whether you approached Another Earth as um, a writer who happened to create a really good part for you to play or as an actress who then built a screenplay around your character? Oh, um, I guess I approach everything as an actor. I mean, I really, I wanted to act, and Mike wanted to direct, and I think we were like, hmm, how do we do this? And we both looked at each other and were like, well, maybe we should write something together. And, and the, the writing or, or learning to write or trying to learn to write would eventually allow us to do the things that we wanted to do. And I think I found in the process that I... I really do love writing as well, but um, I can't imagine writing something for someone else. I mean, it's so much effort and so much work, and you live in these characters for so long that it, um, 
Yeah, no, no. The acting part of it for me is when it fully comes to fruition, when you actually get to play with all that, all that daydreaming you've been doing for so long in a, you know, in a corner. Um, if at any point any of you um, have questions, feel free to raise your hand, and I know that there are people with microphones. I can go on for at least an hour, but I'm going to restrain myself with just a few more. But any time that you have one, please do feel free to raise your hand. Um, I think... How do I put this? You must have been reading works like Brian Greene. Um, you know, th there are beliefs out mm. there that are increasingly um, scientifically valid that there is a multiverse possibility. In other words, we say the word universe, mm. but the possibility that this universe is one of many that yeah. inhabits something more vast than we've ever been able to envisage. Um, do you personally, having made this film, now have any greater or deeper belief in the possibility of parallel universes? Absolutely. I think, I think yes, 100%. It seems um, the math of cutting-edge theoretical physics of today seems to suggest that there is a multiverse. And, and it's interesting, Brian Greene's book, Hidden Realities, there's a sentence in it which is so, so funny. It says, like, uh, if you go to the far reaches of the galaxy and go to the ends of the universe, you'll come across another universe, and inside that you'll come across a galaxy that looks like ours. You'll come across another Earth, another planet that looks like ours. On it there will be another you reading this book, reading this exact sentence. Um, but that other you will get up maybe and go get a sandwich, and you'll stay and keep reading. And maybe there's another you that you wouldn't want to run into in, the in a dark alleyway. Um, but will you ever meet that other version of yourself? No. <laughs> and we took it and we were like, yes, why not? You know, let, let's twist it. Let's take, let's, let's take this parallel universe or multiverse and filter it through an artistic metaphor, ultimately, to, to externalize the internal, to take to give ourselves, just like she says, you know, Yuri had this, this noise and it was bothering him so much and then she changed her perspective. And a lot of the movie is about changing your perspective or getting a new perspective. Us on Earth getting another perspective of ourselves as a society, as a culture, as a planet, and us getting a perspective on ourselves as individuals. So. And the very use of the word perspective makes this so much more appropriate for cinematic treatment than, say, merely a novel or a play, because the camera in your film often takes on, and again, I'm sorry that you haven't all seen this, but sometimes by merely going to a high-angle shot, I mean, all you have to do is position the camera where the other Earth is, you can suggest to the viewer that there is another eye, another perspective looking down upon us, and that, you know, it, it's, it's a brilliant sort of use of cinematic possibility. Thank you. Yes, th I'm so glad you noticed that. It was, for me, for example, for the car crash scene, which you guys caught a glimpse of in the trailer, um, it was very important that the shot was a bird's eye shot. And, um, and, and it, we, we literally do a shot, reverse shot, between this tiny blue dot in the sky when we first discover the Earth and this family in the car. And... Yeah, I, I thought that was, that was one of the most fun things ever to shoot, too, the car crash. Oh. 
anyway. It's, it's quite brilliantly done because there's also shock when you see it from the high angle. Yeah. Um, we have one question here and then in the front row. Hey, man, how are you? Hi, how's it going? Thanks for coming. Uh, thanks. Uh, I actually wanted to thank you for introducing me to a movie that you mentioned in an interview. It was uh, The Five Obstructions. Oh, yeah. Which was really cool. I really oh, you checked it, it out. Yeah, right yeah. on. Um, my question kinda, kind of relates to that. Um, I heard that you guys started filming just by yourselves. Basically, like you um, and the actors. Right. Like the first few weeks. I, I'm not sure when. Um, do you think that the the constraints and maybe budget issues or or the way that the f- film came about, um, do you think the film may have come by, like, differently? Do you think the outcome or, like, the message or... Because I hear that a lot of people, um, once they... I've se- I, I have a few friends that have seen th- the film, and they say that towards the end of it, they they can't really articulate, but they really enjoyed it, like what they liked about it, or like a message. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, that's good. I like that. That's and I was wondering, do you think that the way that you guys um, made the film kind of allowed you to do that and not steer it or have a lot of influences? From I know outside? what you're saying. Absolutely. I think the way we made it, we had a great deal of freedom. And again, that's working with artists, public domain, and you know, very much being such a small, small team and crew. We didn't necessarily have to answer to anybody. We didn't have to make, make any certain terms or anything like that. And so there was a, there was a great freedom in how we wanted to tell the story. And that's part of not having a huge budget and, and part of having a, a support network that, that wants to see your vision come alive. And, uh, and yeah, so, so the, the, the other point, which is that there's, there's nothing didactic in the film. I think that's, that's why they don't say, oh, there's a messaging like, you know, be better in life and don't drink and drive or something. It's not like that. It's, and hopefully that's, that is the goal, is that there's an ineffable emotion that comes across what's that right it it evokes something that they're not familiar with thank you for your comment i appreciate it oh okay we have a question front row hi uh i did see the film uh last night and i I thought it was just terrific I, i A question is raised in the movie, if you met your other self, what would you like that parallel universe entity to say to you? I was wondering if you had asked that of yourselves, if you had met your other selves. (laughs) Uh, Or or conversely, what you might want to say or ask your other self. I mean, I guess, I think if I encountered myself and she looked different for me. I could tell that she had lived some kind of different life. I guess I would be most curious to, to know if, just if she had been brave, like if she had lived her life courageously, if she had lived without being faint of heart. I, would, I guess I would hope that for her and want to know that of her. If, if, if what we had in common and what we didn't have in common, our cho- the choices we had made differently. I... I'd probably ask him if he's making movies, and if he was, I'd be like, all right, I'll show you mine. It's called Another Earth. Like, check out yours, see what he makes. Or if he were, I'd be most curious if he was creating something, what he was creating. And, 
you know, if he was a painter or if he was a musician or a chair designer or something. Like, I'd, I'd be curious, or even anything, I'd be curious what ideas he was generating. It's a great question. Question in the back row center. Hello. Uh, hey, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Uh, the question that I have, with this being like a low-budget film, it doesn't really look like a low-budget film, but I would like to know how long did it take for you to actually uh, produce this? Good question. So the, the project, the timeline was sort of like this. Um, it was about six months of writing, off and on, just the two of us putting, uh, cracking the story, basically. And then the sh shooting happened over the course of a year at various times. And uh, I, I, we kind of designed the schedule to be on the grid and off the grid. This is our like internal framework. On the grid being the, the shoots that had pr full production support. Not a huge team, but about 12 of us um, working on the film. And then off the grid were, was basically Brit, myself, and our friend Leong running around. So a very small, small unit kind of capturing guerrilla, renegade style, stealing shots from in front of a prison, getting, like doing a lot of um, lo-fi uh, capturing of things. So uh, overall, over the course of a year, we probably shot maybe 50 days and then edited for about six months. Something like that. Nice, man. Actually, I have a related question. Um, this is your first feature in terms of the fiction world, but I understand that you made together a documentary yes. called uh, Boxers and Ballerinas. Yes, yes. Um, sort of U.S.-Cuban relationship with one each of boxer and ballerina in the United States and in Cuba. Do you think that the nonfiction background was good training for this particular fiction speculation film? Absolutely, 100%. The not, you know, someone brought up recently that I didn't think about, or we didn't, uh, it didn't occur to us. So Boxers and Ballerinas is about, as you said, a young boxer and ballerina that live in Havana, Cuba, and a young boxer and a ballerina that live in Miami. And there's a parallel there. This is like an alternate version of yourself. If you lived this way, what would your life be like? If you lived in capitalist, like Miami, America, what would life be like versus here? And apparently we didn't even realize there must be some sort of obsession with, you know, second chances or different or parallel versions of oneself. So I thought that was interesting. But that, that was a tangent. I think that's real interesting. Can I ask you what you're working on next? <laughs> Yeah, well, something about reincarnation, of the story of about reincarnation. <laughs> Naturally. Um, but so, I mean, working in documentaries is great because it gives you a great deal of confidence with, with how to structure things, how, just experience, experience, experience. You also get a sense of what, um, the, what the authenticity of real reactions, which is sometimes more peculiar than, than the cliches that we write Initially, like you, the way a human reacts to something tragic may not always be with tears. It may be with laughter, you know? And humans are these very interesting animals that you, you, you can uncover some... The, you know, they say the truth is stranger than fiction. Well, I'm sure you know, but I'll let them know that the great Kieślowski, known for these poetic, spiritual fiction films, he started out he started as a documentarian, do oh, right. too. He made at least 30 so short many. documentaries before he even started with fiction. Well, yes. 
Um, I also find it interesting that no matter how much emphasis you put on the visual in this film, words count. In other words, not just the script, but the way that she'll get to go into Earth 2, that, that she'll ascend, she has to write. In other words, you still have to be able to verbalize mm. in order to take the voyage, you know, both external and internal. And internal. So I could tell that this was a film that was well written. <laughs> Thank you. Um, are there any other questions here? Okay, we got the front row, and First then row. there's a woman in the middle. Hey, uh, where was the uh, where, where was where was it filmed? When was it filmed? And uh, what was the budget? The uh, the film was shot in New Haven, Connecticut, in New York, and upstate New York. Um, when the last year, about a year, no, two years ago. Something like that. It's hard to actually know. Something, I think it was about two years ago, uh, oh, but over the course of a year. And the budget was uh, very, 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 very small. Like about, what would you guess? 500000 Okay, it's one-fifth of that. I'm yeah. not even sure we I should let this be mic'd because I think that... No, no, you, I think it's about 500000 No, actually, I don't know what it is. No, Smaller than Inception's budget. Yeah. <laughs> Bigger yeah. than Blair Witch. I mean, it, it, there's something inspirational about this, and I don't just mean the story within the film, but it's hard enough for a first-time filmmaker to get a motion picture selected for Sundance, and then it's even harder to get a prize at Sundance, and this one, the Alfred Sloan uh, for Scientific Excellence. But then to get a major distributor like Fox Searchlight to pick up your film and give it a real serious release, whoa. <laughs> so th there's something, you know, astounding about this. And Thank you, guys. And, and P.S., I, I just want you to know that it's sort of half of a success story of which you'll hear the other half later this year because Britt Marling actually was in two films in Sundance this year and she co-wrote the other film as well uh, called, if I remember correctly, Sound of My Voice um, directed by Zal uh, Batmanglij who you mentioned earlier because he worked on this film they're all friends and that film was picked up by Fox Searchlight as well so, you know, whoa, congratulations we feel, we feel very fortunate, very, very lucky. Very fortunate. That was actually um, kind of my question, was to tell us about your experience with Sundance. Was that your first time? And just meeting other filmmakers and the whole process of, it was of being it was, in Park City. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. Um, we were there year, a, few, a few years earlier with the movie Leonard Cohen, I'm Your Man, which is a documentary that we worked on. Um, but this is our first time with a fictional film and in competition, and it was it was such a dream come true even to just get the phone call. That was one of the biggest moments, the acceptance, you know, into Sundance, and then uh, and then the you know the community at Sundance, the filmmakers, the the programmers. There's such uh, there's such an intelligence and a care for independent cinema and, and telling stories at an angle, stories, new, fresh stories. And I felt like, especially this year, there was something very profound and powerful going on. And, and we've become very close with the other filmmakers there. You, and uh, you, they, there's like the Sundance class of 2011, which is, it's just, it was a huge honor. And, and the way the film was received blew our expectations away. And then winning the two awards and the release, it's, 
Yeah, two awards, right? Mind-boggling. Um, so it's been a, it's been one of those dreams that you you're not sure if you're gonna wake up tomorrow and be like, wait, that was just a dream. So it's really it's it's so special, and it's been amazing. Mm. Um, in the back. Uh, last row, towards your right. Hi. Um, so I didn't actually see this film, but uh, from the trailer, a lot of the settings took place in like a very modern environment with like people dressing as they do today and with cars and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So can you like comment a little bit about how you compared or like put the modern today environment with like a topic that is very futuristic? Mm. That's a good that's a good point. So it the the idea is there's an alignment. I mean, I could talk about it this for a while. There's an alignment of the planets that it's about to occur soon. I, 2012, like, talks about it and stuff. Um, but the notion is that this other Earth was hidden. It, it takes place in present day, basically. Present day, flash forward maybe a year uh, or six months. Um, and this other planet, this other Earth that is somehow through a tear in... Uh, the space cosmos has ended up on the opposite side of our sun. And the alignment of the planets has shifted its orbit about 15 degrees, so it's within view. We can see it up in the sky, and its orbit is such that it's coming closer and closer to us and travel to this other Earth, which we call Earth 2, and perhaps they call us Earth 2. It's kind of one of those ego things. Um, uh, it, it, it is meant to take place in modern day. So, Yeah. Does that answer the question? No? <laughs> well, I, I can tell you one detail which made me realize that it's not just modern day, but the New Haven train line obviously has not changed in approximately so. 25 years because I used to teach at Yale and I commuted between New Haven and New York. I can remember the bathrooms in the trains mm. of the New Haven line. I remember the smell. And there are two scenes. I, the smell came back to uh. me because the train has not changed. It's definitely not a futuristic image of the New Haven or West Haven community. Absolutely. Um, there Last was question. One other question? Yes. This is actually to, I'm an aspiring filmmaker, so I wanted to ask you, I guess on a technical level, like which camera... And did you go with the Canon thing? Or are you shooting film or something else? We shot with the Sony EX3. Okay. It's a nice camera. We, uh, I, didn't, I opted not to use prime, lens, even though, prime lenses, even though we had them in our toolkit. I wanted to create a very verite aesthetic to it and cut it on Final Cut Pro. Right. Yeah, because I heard about, I think, that film Monsters that was done That was also shot on the EX3, too. Yeah. EX3, and similar kind of like stealing shots. It's a great And then camera, adding yeah. stuff to dead space. So figured it's great because you can take the cards out of the EX3 and slide them right into the MacBook Pros. They have the little right. slot there. It's, it's a really streamlined process. Right. And then the second part would be, how did you, like, if this is your first, I think it is, um, what did you do... Prior to this, were you like film school grad, or did you actually just cut your teeth on other productions to like develop? I, uh, Britt and I, we both went to Georgetown. I was an economics major in school, so I didn't actually study film. I, I studied film sort of as a hobby and an interest, and I made short films as a hobby and an interest. Um, and I had an obsession, but I never thought it was going to be my career when I was going through school, I, I guess. 
Um, but but it, I was obsessed ever since I was a kid. And then when I graduated from Georgetown, I got a job at National Geographic, and and it was great. It was my first job out of school, and I was like a pitch editor, and I put together a pitch for a show that was like seven minutes, and it was greenlit like a month after I was at Geographic, and then they promoted me to field producer, cinematographer, editor, and I flew all around the world making like shark documentaries, which was kind of wild. Um, and then I, I produced a show for MTV called True Life, and um, you know, a lot of documentaries, and this Boxers and Ballerinas movie in Cuba, Leonard Cohen, so mostly documentaries. And then about two and a half years ago, Britt and I were talking about wanting to do something fictional again. And so, so we gained a lot of experience from just using the cameras, learning to edit, learning, reading tons of books, watching tons of movies. We went to McKee's like, story th- seminar. I don't know if you guys have seen Adaptation, but the, the Brian Cox's character is a real guy, and he does give a real script writing course, which is fun uh, to check out. And so, so we just trained ourselves in that, and then and began. Great question. I mean, you know, the, the truth is, even though I teach film history at Columbia University, and I, I'm very proud of the MFA film program, not everybody has to go to film school. Mm-hmm. And it is sometimes incredibly expensive and time-consuming. And occasionally, you've got enough talent and means that you can realize your vision without you know, doing the MFA route, but the MFA is good for some. Um, I know that we're pretty much at the end of the, our, our time frame. Um, I just want to say that there seems to be something very appropriate about having this discussion now, because it's this week that the space shuttle program finished. In other words, from here on in, there won't be U.S. funding of you know, the shuttle going up. It'll have to be private corporations or other countries. So your speculations on how we might end up doing space travel, um, certainly we can do it cinematically, if not literally. And I thank Britt Marling, Mike Cahill, for being with us here today. Thank you. Thank you, you, everybody. Thanks thanks for coming. Thanks, guys.